Hey guys, welcome to Thrive Bites, the official podcast of Dr. Colin Zhu, aka The Chef Doc. On every episode, I talk with health and wellness experts from all over the world, such as doctors, chefs, dietitians, coaches, and many more. And I sit down with them and have casual conversations about plant-based lifestyle, how to elevate our emotional resilience, and what it really means to thrive. And I bring all of this to you. So let's get to this week's episode. Okay, guys, so welcome to another episode of Thrive Bites. I'm your host, Colin Zhu, and thank you for listening on. Today, we have a very, very, very special episode for you guys today. Um, I would love to introduce to you my good friend, pal, and medical colleague, Dr. Tom Sporato. Say hi to everyone, Tom. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. How are you? <laughs> um, I'm so, so glad, uh, that, you know, you're here today and, um, you know, thank you so much for, you know, coming on. Well, thank you for having me and giving me the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for those of you who do not know who uh, Dr. Tom is, um, Tom is a practicing gastroenterologist out in Olympia Fields, Illinois. Um, he works at a community located 25 miles southwest out of downtown Chicago, and um, he's very actively involved um, in the graduate medical education program at Franciscan um, Health um, Olympian uh, Field, teaching internal medicine residents and gastroenterology fellows. Um, he received his medical degree from the West Virginia School of Osteopathic Medicine, both of our alma mater. And shout out to them. Um, and he completed his internal medicine residency out in Lutheran General Hospital and his GI fellowship through Midwestern University. And he's board certified in both internal medicine and gastroenterology. So super excited uh, for you to be here. Thank you once again. Um, we are such good buddies and pals. Um, I remember the days where, um, you know, before I went super plant-based, uh, like six years ago, we would, you know, be out in Pittsburgh and, uh, you know, doing our sushi runs from our, you know, rotations and just having, you know, <laughs> such a ball. Uh, I think your favorite role was like, what was it? Like your spicy tuna hand roll was your, like your fa- favorite role. Do you remember that? It's hard to go wrong with that. So yeah, <laughs> that definitely was one of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> and uh your family is originally from Greece, right? That's right. Yeah. So what tell us like a typical uh typical favorite dish, you know? Um because I remember coming to your place uh having to do a rotation and you know, like, you know, most people when they think of Greek, you know, Greek food, they'll think of like spinach pie, they'll think of like, you know, lamb, like what is your go-to dish? Yeah. So I, you know, my go-to dish tends to be a fresh salad. Uh, We call it uh, a village salad. And that just includes basically some cucumber, fresh tomato. Uh, Sometimes people will add a little bit of lettuce to that, Uh, some feta cheese, uh, oil and vinegar. And it's just, it's one of the best uh, things you can ever eat. Oh, I can't oh. forget the oregano too on that. So, <laughs> yes, man, I can't forget that too. Uh, yeah, it's always good, good fun. And Tom and I go way back, and we always just we always really gather around, you know, food and uh, community. You know, um, that's you know how 
usually, you know, how our friendship kind of, you know, blossomed from there. So, and I'm so happy that he's doing his thing. So the reason why we're making this special episode is, um, you know, today is September 2nd. I can't believe it's September already. And um, last uh, last Friday, we just heard about the recent pa- uh, passing of Chadwick uh, Bozeman, who, you know, for those in the audience know um, as the star of, you know, Black Panther and many, many great Black iconic movie roles like Jackie Robinson, James Brown, um, Thur- uh, Good Marshall. And he, you know, just did these acting roles like you know, fantastic and stupendously, you know, he was a gifted actor. Um, As, you know, I was heartbroken knowing, you know, his passing because he was such a great human being. But what was more surprising to me was um, of the reason why he passed. And uh, the reason why he passed was from, you know, colon cancer. You know, a lot of people didn't know, a lot of his, uh, you know, a lot of Hollywood didn't know. He was, diagnosed uh, stage three uh, about four years ago in 2016. And, you know, what was more impressive was that he was able to act in these, you know, great movie roles, you know, throughout, you know, uh, his diagnosis. And the reason why, you know, I've asked Tom to be on was, you know, we really wanted to highlight, you know, kind of like a public service announcement with, um, with colon cancer, with gut health, and, you know, all things relating to that, and uh, really bring it to light, because it's something that, you know, we could definitely talk about. Um, Definitely, you know, there's a lot of great screening options. um, And we can talk about, you know, how, what are the things, you know, increasing, you know, the likelihood of getting this, you know, really terrible condition. And what are the things that, you know, that decrease the likelihood of getting this, you know, disease. And, um, you know, I think it's a very important thing to talk about, um, you know, and that's why I have them, you know, come on. And uh, my own personal a journey with this. I had a uh, I had a grandmother on my mother's side that passed from this, and I was actually in school. I don't know if you knew this, Tom, but I was actually in school doing the West Virginia uh, the local five um, k uh, chocolate run. Um, you know, in uh, I think it's been more than a few years ago now. But I was doing this five k when I actually heard um, that my grandmother was in the hospital, and my parents were actually there to support me. And, um, yeah, so we weren't there to kind of, you know, uh, see her pass, unfortunately, but my, my, my takeaway was that, you know, her death was, um, you know, quick and painless, but she was diagnosed, you know, a lot, you know, uh, later in stage for mm. the cancer. So, yeah. I'm sorry to hear of that about your grandmother. And I think a lot of people can relate to a similar story. Uh, colon cancer is very common, unfortunately. And, um, uh, either you personally have been affected or someone that you know definitely has uh, has uh, been affected by some someone with colon cancer. So thank you for sharing that story. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. Um, so let's get down and dirty with it. And, um, you know, let's go over like, you know, quick facts and figures, you know, like where, where have you seen the numbers um, in terms of where we're at in like 2020, or maybe like 18 or 19 data in terms of, you know, how does colon cancer rank um, with the other, you know, uh, you know, cancers that kill off Americans? Let's just stick with the United States. Colon cancer is the second leading reason why people die from cancer. 
So it's, it's, it's a very big problem here in the United States. Uh, it affects uh, roughly 100,000 people every year who are diagnosed with colon cancer, and roughly 50,000 people every year will die from the disease. Yeah, so that's almost like if you break down the math, that's almost like a thousand per week, right? That's it's it's crazy, you know. Um, you know what I what I you know I was looking into this as well, and um, I was uh, listening to an expert say like almost if you break that down even further, it's almost like one out of twenty people that you will meet, you know, will be diagnosed with it, and um, you know, like he says, almost like one out of three of that, you know, will you know uh, will die. And uh, can we talk about, you know, in terms of like you, you had talked about males and females, you know, does males get this more or do females like who, which gender, uh, you know, gets affected more? So that's a really good question. So in general, we're looking at about 4% of both men and women who will be diagnosed with colon cancer in their lifetime. We consider this, this number based upon kind of an average risk person, someone who uh, doesn't have any family member uh, in their uh, family history with colon cancer or high risk type of colon polyps. Mm-hmm. Um, so the incidence of colon cancer is about thirty percent higher, though, in men when we compare it to compare them to to women. Uh, mm-hmm. However, the lifetime risk uh, is similar because women tend to live a little bit longer than men. Uh, but in general, when we think of uh, you know. Uh, gender affecting uh, the the incidence, for sure, uh, males have about a 30% higher incidence compared to women. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And for those in the audience that doesn't know what incidence means, that means like the number of new cases um, that are presented. Right. The number of new cases within a specific period of time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I definitely want to highlight the ethnicity, you know, the color background with this. And, you know, from my, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, like from what I got was, you know, Africans American, you know, Chadwick uh, Boseman was black, you know, Um, we, I found that stats were like 20% higher than like Caucasians. Do you find that to be true? Yes. So studies, demographic studies have shown that the incidence rate for, um, for having colon cancer is 20% higher in African Americans compared to uh, Caucasians, at least here in the United States. Uh, that is why in the past we, uh, we recommended that all African Americans uh, who are average risk again, um, start their colon cancer screening at around age 45, as opposed yeah. to age 50 for everyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? You know, we're in September, we're in the year in the pandemic. Um, you know, what I, what I found, you know, as we talked about, you know, the past, um, uh, last few months we did, a, you know, during we're, we're in season three, you know, and season at the end of season two, when the pandemic hit, um, I started highlighting a lot of, uh, COVID related, uh, like I started a wellness series with that. And then throughout over time, you know, we just, you know, heard a lot of health disparities. You know, the reason why we're, you know, making, you know, we're talking about these stats is because, you know, people of color, black and browns, and, you know, they are disproportionately affected, you know, not just with colon cancer, but with like diabetes, heart disease, um, you know, all these different things. And 
I don't know, Tom, you know, in relation to colon cancer, um, you know, why people of color are, you know, uh, you know, more, but in terms of other disease processes, you know, you have health access, you know, contributes to it. You have poor quality, you know, diet contributes to it. Um, and you know, it's just, it's just so many different reasons and it's just, it, it really sucks, you know? Um, and this, this has been hitting the news over and over and over again. And, um, you know, some, we need to, we need to work hard to kind of, you know, not just, you know, blacks, but like across the board, be able to help as many people as possible. So I don't know from a colon cancer perspective, like, you know, is there a reason why, you know, does the literature say like, you know, why, you know, they're more affected? Absolutely. You know, the whole goal is to raise awareness uh, and, so, and that, that's a, a great point. You know, we really don't understand why um, the, uh, there's this, such a, this disparity within um, uh, the different races. However, uh, we assume at this point that it has something to do with the socioeconomic status and their access to health care, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, as well as access to good quality foods, healthy foods, um, mm-hmm. and uh also, you know, when we're talking about other risks, uh, you, you bring up a really good point as far as uh, other comorbidities. Um, mm-hmm. We're dealing with, uh, with those who may not have access to good quality foods, uh, healthy, mm-hmm. fresh foods. You're, you know, their, their risk for uh, getting diabetes or uh, obesity starts to rise uh, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, why don't we like break this down, you know, so we talked about, you know, so, you know, I would say, you know, for those of you are listening right now, um, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when you listen about coronavirus, you're like, okay, what can I do for my health, right? And now, you know, when you have a, you know, an iconic, you know, person, you know, passing away, you're like, okay, what can I do? And for me, it's like, I always emphasize you, for those of you listening to my, you know, podcast, it's like, I listen, you know, I overemphasize prevention and wellness, you know, I hit this home. And so with this, I feel like, you know, there's so many great, you know, screening tools with colon cancer. And what's, you know, mind boggling is that we don't actually have that great you know, screening options for all types of cancers. You know, we don't have that great screening options for like uterine cancer, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer. We have them great for, you know, uh, for colon, right? We have so many great options and we'll talk about that, um, you know, rather recently more with like lung, uh, breasts, you know, and uh, cervical, you know, like, you know, prostate, it's like, eh, you know, over time. So, you know, for colon, there's so many great stuff. And so, you know, let's break this down. So we talked about age, we talked about gender, we talked about ethnicity. So let's talk about, you know, personal history and family history. What can you tell us in terms of, you know, that, you know, that increases or decreases the likelihood of getting colon cancer? So it's really important to, um, uh, when we're dealing with colon uh, colon cancer screening, as far as when to begin screening, we always consider their family history. Uh, someone who's at, uh, at risk for colon cancer is someone who has a first degree relative with colon cancer, of course. Um, you may also have someone who has a few, at least two second degree relatives. We would mm-hmm. consider those people uh, higher risk for developing colon cancer. The other thing is, even if let's say you have a fam- family history, not, not of colon cancer, but of several polyps or high risk polyps, meaning they're, they're big polyps or the type of polyp tends to be considered higher risk. 
it's also important that you know you speak with your um, with your primary care doctor. Let them know about this family history because there are certain instances where we would start screening at an early earlier age than age forty five or fifty, um, and be a little bit more aggressive about uh, uh, screening you. Hey guys, we're going to be taking a short break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Thrive Bites. Let's get back to the interview. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so for those, just to kind of clarify for um, those in the audience, a first degree um, relative is like your mom and dad, right? Correct. Yeah. And a second degree would be? So we're, we're, we're talking uh, aunts, uncles, grandparents, those sorts yeah. of members. I mean, if you guys are curious and, you know, um, because I get this a lot, I don't know about you, Tom, but like, you know, when I interview a patient, um, and I ask them like, can you tell me a little bit more about your family history? A lot of them, a lot of them kind of scratch their heads. Right. And then when they come in with a certain issue and you kind of talk about and highlight, okay, tell me, you know, did your family history have this trend? Like what, what's going on? Um, so it's important to understand your family tree. And obviously if you don't know your relatives, you don't know your relatives, but it's important because, you know, it's just as important to learn about your own personal health, but it's also important about learning the family patterns that are coming down the line. That's right. It's very important. And if, if someone's able to somehow gather that information, then that, you know, all the power to them, it really will make a difference. It can make the difference basically. Um, if you think about it, someone who doesn't really know their history, family history very well, they may, they may be told to start screening at, let's say, age 50. Uh, but, but if, if they start to understand a little bit more of their history, family history, and they find out that they have, uh, several family members, um, uh, in the past with, uh, diagnosed with colon cancer, that, that age can change drastically in which we start. Uh, you know, we can, we can, talk about 10, 20, maybe even 30 years younger, depending on mm-hmm. when that person was diagnosed. So yeah. it does make a very big difference. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so going with, if we're just talking about the average risk, asymptomatic, you know, without symptoms type of, uh, you know, person, right? You know, we, for the longest time, a lot of the, you know, there's a lot of organizations and academic colleges that, you know, we've been historically screening at 50, obviously with different uh, backgrounds we started to do earlier. <clears throat> but have you noticed that um, in the in the literature or, you know, over time, you know, we've been having a lot of new cases that are diagnosed earlier, you know what I'm saying? You know, is, is there talks to kind of push that screening to earlier in general, um, because I was reading like the, the American Cancer Society, they, you know, they're, you know, at 45, others are still sticking at 50. Like what, what is the general consensus, uh, consensus now? So you bring up a really good point. Um, you know, when we're, we're, we're dealing recently, uh, back in 2018, the Amer- American Cancer Society actually came out with a, a new recommendation that um, all Americans uh, who are uh, considered average risk start screening at age 45 instead of age 50. Um, and that has something to do with the trend that we're seeing. Uh, when we're looking at um, 
incidence of colon cancer in different age groups. For example, we, we have done a really good job over the past few decades uh, in, the, in people who are age 50 to 75 uh, mm-hmm. in decreasing the incidence of colon cancer. And so uh, we've done a really good job seeing that decline. And uh, however, when we're looking at younger groups under age 50, we're actually seeing the opposite effect. And we're actually seeing a, a, a rise in uh, mm-hmm. the incidence of colon cancer. We don't really know why. That rise is estimated to be about 2% per year. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some theories that uh, it may have something to do with our increasingly sedentary type of life our unfavorable type of diet that's that's high in processed foods, low in, 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 um, in fiber type foods. Yep. Um, so there are a lot of, and if you think about it, you know, it's really astonishing that the obesity rate here in the United States is, you know, hovering around 40%. That's nearly half of all Americans considered obese. Yeah. All all risk factors when, uh, we're talking about, uh, you know, the, you know, contributing to developing uh, colon cancer. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Let's talk about diet first, right? And, you know, you talked about the processed foods, you're talking about, you know, the low fiber, like, how does that, how and why does that contribute towards, you know, colon cancer? Well, there's a lot of theories as far as why it contributes. But, you know, let's put this into perspective, you know, more than half of all colon cancers can be attributed to simply lifestyle choices. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we're, we're talking about an unhealthy diet, um, you know, we're, we're talking about increased calories leading to obesity. We know that um, when people have a uh, higher central type of fat deposition or central obesity, that increases the risk for colon cancer. Yeah, we don't really know exactly what part of that diet element contributes to um, uh, to this increased risk. But, it, it, you know, there's some theories that this... Uh, uh, there's some, um, the, the, these types of foods influence the, uh, gut microbiome, yeah. uh, which then leads to, you know, uh, a change in, you know, the inflammatory response, uh, within the gut itself. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also some theories about the insulin that is, uh, that ends up getting over secreted during, uh, during these periods. And as a result, uh, you have increased inflammation again. So it all leads yep. up to this thought of uh, increasing inflammation within the body itself. So, yeah, yeah. You know, that's the unhealthy diet portion. But, you know, yeah. don't forget about the poor physical activity. You know, it's recommended uh, by the American Cancer Society that we all get at least about 150 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity per week. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but it's it's pretty difficult to to uh, to find time to exercise, let alone to make sure that that's moderate to high intensity. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I um I tell my patients, you know what, you know, physical activity is not rocket science, right? And I want you to you know do something that you enjoy, right? And obviously, in, in a pandemic, you know, we are limited in terms of choices. But I always tell people, you know what, just walk. You know what I'm saying? Like you have a sidewalk, you have maybe a hiking trail if it's not closed down. You have, you know, maybe a boardwalk if you're near the, if you live in a coastal city, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and it's free. You don't need a gym membership. I'm not asking you to run a marathon. I'm not asking you to be like Arnold and lift crazy weights. I just need you to walk. You know what I'm saying? And we can, you know, toy with, we can like, you know, uh, toy with this in 
terms of like increasing intensity. Um, I tell people you need at least a couple of days of resistance, um, you know, weight resistance, whether it's in the form of bands, lightweights, um, you know, just so we can build muscle and that combination should help. Um, and then also, you know, as we go down the line in terms of, uh, you know, risk factors, you know, there's smoking, right? There's smoking, um, alcohol, right? That plays into this as well, right? Yeah, you, you bring up two, uh, two other risk factors that are really important to highlight. You know, high amounts of alcohol intake have been associated with uh, uh, increasing risk of colon cancer as well as smoking. Uh, I think the decline in smoking over the, the past uh, few decades uh, has contributed to uh, this decline in incidence in colon cancer in the 50 to 75 age groups. But uh, now we're dealing with uh, the obesity. So this other risk factor that's starting to kind of creep up. And that's why we're not really seeing as robust of a decline in this age group as we uh, saw in the previous decade. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, smoking, you know, back in the day, um, I remember... You know, when the first first uh, attorney general uh, made that statement that smoking was bad for you, causes cancer, around 6,000 studies, you know, with, the, with studying how smoking affects, you know, your health was already published by then when he made that statement, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it can show – and over time, we've done a very good job. But my point is that we, it can – you know, we can see how powerful the tobacco industry was trying to, uh, you know, fight against this, right? And you, and, and you know, this is before our time. But doctors smoked, you know, in the lounges, in the doctors' offices, in the hospital, right? And then obviously that's not it's that's not the case anymore. Yeah, it's but, crazy to believe. It's crazy to yeah, think it, but you know, yeah. And and if you follow um, Dr. Neil Neil Bernard, um, he uh, he he's he's from the Physicians Committee of Responsible Medicine, and he said that you know eating, you know, going back to eating a diet is kind of like the new smoking, you know. And um, you know, we talked about about uh, eating what kinds of foods um, and the different types that create more of like an inflammatory response. And one thing we didn't hit on was fiber, you know, fiber, you know, for the average American, you know, uh, because we are more heavy towards a meat predominant, um, processed, refined, you know, carb type of society, what, you know, we end up doing is that, you know, a lot of animal foods, a lot of animal based foods, you know, doesn't have fiber. Um, and I tell people like fiber is like the roughage. It's kind of like the, the scrub pad, you know, of what you're cleaning and, you know, vegetables and fruits, whole grains, they all have fiber. And uh, the average American only eats like 15 grams per day. Um, and, you know, when, when I recommend plant-based and other organizations, they recommend 40 plus, you know, and it's super, super um, important. Um, you know, how does the fiber, you know, you know, from what you understand, you know, in relation to how does that play in towards like gut health and microbiome and all that stuff? Yeah, so that's a really good, uh, good question. You know, our theory of how fiber and whole grains specifically help improve um, uh, the or decrease the risk of, uh, of being uh, diagnosed with colon cancer. Our theory is that it helps improve transit time. So again, if we go back to the idea of 
uh, inflammation or the amount of inflammation that's going on in the body based on what's what's coming into the body, right? What you're eating, uh, the higher uh, amount of fiber that you take in, the the greater uh, speed at which it's it's removed from the body. And so in theory, you know, you have less inflammation that goes on or less possibility of the inflammation affecting the, the, uh, the body at, uh, when, when you eat those, those whole grains. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our, our risk, it's estimated to decrease about 5% for every 30 grams of, of fiber we, we take in per day. Um, I, I, one of the, the things I, you know, highly recommend at every visit um, for most of my patients uh, is a high fiber diet. And you'd be surprised at how many GI related type of symptoms improve just by, uh, yeah. you know, really working on someone's diet, um, specifically improving the, uh, the, the amount of fiber that they take in. Um, mm-hmm. you, you did mention red meats, processed meats. I know that was a hot topic, uh, within the past few years as well. Um, and it's amazing how all of a sudden it, you know, it gains some attention early on, but then immediately afterwards, within a few months, people stop talking about it. But we do know that the risk of colon cancer is increased by red, yeah. eating more red meats and processed foods or yeah. processed type of meats. So think, think about it this way. For every 50 grams of processed meats, red meats or sausages someone consumes, and that's as little as two slices of lunch meat. I mean, yeah. it's such a small amount, but that increases your risk of colon cancer nearly 20%. Yeah, so. yeah. I'm so glad you touched on this because the World Health Organization back around like 2015, they created a task force and to kind of you know look at these different types of uh, animal-based foods. And believe it or not, um, you know, it still shocks me every time I look at this um, uh, look at these two categories is that they classified, you know, red meat um, to be a group 2A carcinogen, right? And a carcinogen is something that is, you know, components or the actual entity that actually leads towards cancer producing. And uh, so red meat is group at, you know, uh, group 2A. And then, you know, processed meat is classified as a class one. Right. And, um, you know, what surprised me after that was like, you know, what else is a class one carcinogen? You know, it's asbestos and and smoking. Wow. (laughs) Like those are still those are class ones. And and then you have the WHO classifying processed meats in the same category. And it astounds astounds me how we don't have labeling warning signs for this, right? And we just eat this nonchalantly, right? And so what are processed meats? You know, cured meats, bacon, deli meats, um, you know, uh, you know, hot dog, like anything that's processed, right? Um, you know, we're not talking about like a steak, we're talking about things that are, uh, you know, just manipulated, you know, um, and cooked, you know, differently, right? A lot of things too, that animal based foods have that are different from plant food is that they have something called heme iron. Um, heme iron is a pro-oxidant, um, you know, that, you know, is, you know, increasing the likelihood for oxidation or oxidative stress. And what that means for the listening audience is kind of like, you know, rust to a car, you know what I'm saying? And if you look at, I always bring up this analogy in my past episodes. It's like, if you think about your body, like a car, you know, that a car eventually rusts out. And so 
what you put in your mouth, how you live your life, you know, is to kind of delay that as much as possible, right? And so heme iron is one. And they also have something, especially processed meats, like something called uh, nitrites or nitrosamines, right? And there's been a lot of um, studies that show, you know, associations with increase in cancer, you know, like, for example, stomach cancer. Uh, I don't know, if Tommy, if you can speak to that um, a little bit, but that's something different with, uh, you know, processed meats as well. Hey guys, we're going to be taking a short break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Thrive Bites. Let's get back to the interview. Yeah, that's definitely an increased risk of uh, curing meats, um, uh, high salted type of foods, that sort of thing. Uh, barbecue yeah. type foods uh, definitely increases the risk there. Yeah, and not to mention the saturated fat and the trans fat that comes along with this. Uh, and like you say, you, get, you bring up a good point with the, how it's prepared because you know when you're grilling, when you're frying something, it increases uh, the AGEs, which is the gly- glycylic you know end products. Basically, fancy way of saying you know, um, adding towards that oxidative stress. So, you know, we talked about the risk factors, you know, so let's talk about the screening options, you know, getting, hitting, hitting this back to home. Um, you know, what are, what are the available screening options that we have? And, you know, what would you, you know, recommend people that, um, you know, are curious that want to talk about their talk to their healthcare provider or gastroenterologist or GI provider? Like, where do we start? Yeah. So, um, so I think it's important that, you know, everyone just start the conversation with a healthcare provider, whether that's your primary care doctor or some, someone that uh, you're seeing for uh, any other type of condition that can then lead you to, um, to either a GI doctor or someone else um, to give you these other options that are available. But, uh, you know, th- I want to make sure uh, my goal for today is to, to really uh, get, get awareness out there um, and make sure that, you know, at least help make people feel more comfortable with the idea of colon cancer screening. Um, number one, like I said, it's just really being able to start the conversation. If you have questions, please talk to a, uh, a healthcare provider, whoever that may be, and they'll be able to guide you in the right direction, at least give you some more information about when it might be um, a good time to start. Um, and then number two, uh, a colon cancer screening doesn't necessarily mean you're going to need a colonoscopy per se. It's an option out there. A colonoscopy is a great tool that we use, uh, but there are some other uh, types of uh, tests, uh, stool-based tests that are also great options. I always say to my patients, the best screening test that uh, is available is the one that actually gets done by the patient. And mm. um, so as long as we're doing the, the, the screening tests that are options for every single person, um, uh, as long as we're doing them and completing them and following up on them, that's the most important thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So for me as a family care provider, um, you know, we, I talk mostly about the stool test, the annual stool tests and colonoscopies. And I know there's a lot more, you know, back in the day, it was more sigmoidoscopies, right? And then now we have more like DNA tests and, you know, things like that. 
you know, but my 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 observations over time is that patients have been skittish about like the procedure, right? And what goes down with the procedure. Tell us like the pros and cons with getting the stool test, which is, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, recommended um, depending on which age you, you work with uh, your healthcare provider, starting at which age, but you get this annually with the stool test. Um, the pros and cons to that, what are the steps for that? And then the pros and cons for the scoping. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, you know, I like to break it down into kind of the more invasive type of options and the, the less invasive type of options. So when, when we talk about, you know, kind of our uh, quote unquote gold standard, you know, that's, that's your colonoscopy. Uh, you know, the, 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 the pro of the colonoscopy or the benefit is that, you know, it's a great uh, screening option that allows us to visualize the colon wall. Uh, but in order to do so, we need to kind of cleanse the, the bowels. And, and a lot of people just don't want to have to deal with that type of cleanse. Um, and then the, the second part is it usually involves some sort of sedation. So it can sometimes be a little bit difficult for people to find, um, you know, let's say a ride home after the procedure um, and, you know, try to schedule around other people's schedules, if you will. Uh, but it's a great test because not only do we, you know, are we able to visualize the colon wall, we're able to take away or remove polyps or precancerous growths uh, at that uh, uh, point in time. So it's it's therapeutic at the same time. Yeah. Uh, you know, as far as, you know, the, the other options that are available, if someone says, you know what, I really don't want to go through anesthesia and the idea of a colonoscopy I know is not pleasant, but you'd be surprised at how uh, relieved people are afterwards because we do make sure that people are completely comfortable. They don't remember a thing. They're completely comfortable. They do not have any pain or tenderness down below afterwards. Even if we remove large polyps, uh, they, they feel, uh, you know, for the most part, great. They may have a little bloating from the air that we instill in the bowel, but usually that bloating is very short-lived. And by the time they really wake up from the anesthesia, that, that sensation is completely gone. But, uh, you know, that's, you know, as far as the, the non-invasive type of options that are available, um, you know, we, we have other options. And uh, depending on which test you do, for example, if, um, you know, depending on which test you do will determine um, the timing of your next colonoscopy or the timing of your next colon cancer screening. So, I, I, you know, I started by talking about the colonoscopy. You know, some people uh, ask me, when will I need another one? Well, you know, if we don't, if you're considered someone average risk and without a family history of colon cancer, asymptomatic, no type of GI uh, symptoms, that sort of thing, and we don't find any polyps, then you don't have to bother with screening for, for another 10 years. Mm -hmm. But um, let's say if um, you have uh, one or two polyps, the timing of your next colonoscopy uh, will be determined based on the type of polyp, the number of polyps, uh, and the size of those polyps. So we really individualize the screening or the surveillance in that instance, uh, based on, uh, based on what we find. Yeah. Yeah. But for the in-between, so you're referring to like the scoping, right? So the in-between, you know, would you suggest, you know, getting, you know, the stool test in between, uh, on an annual basis? No. So, uh, once someone goes through a colonoscopy, um, the findings of the colonoscopy, Again, it's individualized, but the findings on the colonoscopy as well as their family history is kind of taken into account, and that determines the timing of the next uh, procedure. 
for the surveillance. So as I mentioned, you know, if someone's average risk without any symptoms, no findings on colonoscopy, again, they don't have to worry about repeating any colonoscopy or any type of colon cancer screening for a minimum of 10 years. So a lot of people like that option because they're busy. They don't want to have to deal with, you know, going to their primary doctor and having to, to submit stool samples. And I guess that's a good, good segue into the less invasive type of screening options for patients. You know, um, so, you know, there, there are stool based tests that look for microscopic amounts of blood in the stool. Um, most recently, one of the newer tests uh, not only looks for blood, but it also uh, looks for um, certain proteins or D parts of DNA uh, that are shed by large high-risk polyps and colon cancer. And so if any one of those things is identified, it kind of flags it as a positive. So um, those are options for people uh, that are less invasive than a colonoscopy. But let's mm -hmm. say if you choose the uh, the, the, the stool test route, the immunochemical stool test route, whether it's simply looking for blood in the stool, you're looking at needing to repeat that test every single year. If we're talking about the other test the, uh, that incorporates the, the stool DNA, which is known as Cologuard, uh, then if it's negative, you would need to repeat that in three years. Mm -hmm. So it really depends on um, you know, what type of test you're doing uh, which will determine the, the timing of your next um, uh, screening. So let's just say you have a patient, for example, that would opt for the less invasive, you know, the stool test, right? Like, could they go for, you know, that screening period from 50 to 75, for example, just on the stool test? Or would you recommend like, hey, you know, I think it might be a good idea if we throw in a scope you know, uh, somewhere in there? Like, could they go theoretically from 50 to 75 without having to do a scope? Would you recommend that? If it's someone who is average risk without any symptoms, then that is a, an option for them to, um, to only have to do annual uh, stool tests. But it's really important, uh, and I emphasize the importance of this, if someone decides to go that route, it's really important not to miss uh, you know, or not to prolong um, the the tests, the duration between tests. It's very important that every single year that that test get done. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, we can be so busy in our lives that we can, you know, put it off or forget about it. So, um, but what's what, the importance of emphasizing these choices is that, you know, there's many options, right? And we have, um, you know, enough, you know, knowledge and experience and data, you know, to be able to say like, hey, you know, this works, you know, but we just have to educate the patients, educate and reinforce that relationship between uh, patient and healthcare provider to be able to say like, hey, you know, here are your options. Let's get this done, you know, and review their history, uh, which is a nice segment to, you know, um, yeah, as we close out, like, what are the things that, you know, you would recommend like looking out for? Like, what are the signs and symptoms? We didn't talk about this mm -hmm. in the beginning, but like, you know, what are, what are things like, you know, someone was curious, like, you know, I, I am really distraught with, you know, um, Chadwick Boseman's death. You know, I know a lot of people that had colon cancer. Like, how can I, what are some things I need to look for to be like, hey, you know, this is a red flag. I need to go see my doctor or, you know, just things to ask them when they see them. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I'm glad you uh, kind of brought us back to, um, to the, the different symptoms that people should be looking for. 
you know, you know, typically when we're talking about colon cancer screening, we're, we're thinking of someone who is completely asymptomatic, right? Someone who, um, uh, based on their age and their family history, uh, requires a, uh, a, a screening. But when we deal with, uh, um, symptoms, uh, alarm symptoms that require a diagnostic evaluation, that's completely different. So, you know, for, for especially the young uh, population under 50, it's really important that if anyone is having rectal bleeding, please don't attribute it to just hemorrhoids. It's very, very important to have that evaluated by a gastroenterologist uh, yes. or even your primary care doctor. Start the conversation, let them know how often that the bleeding, you're seeing the bleeding. Um, it's really important to, to be mindful of maybe changes in, in, in your bowel habits, whether, um, you know, if you were regular, let's say with, with not having to strain and all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're going several days without a bowel movement, it's not getting any better. You try to modify your diet. Don't wait months and months to let someone know about that. It's really important that you start that conversation. Um, with your with your primary doctor, or other healthcare provider. Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up because a lot of people, you know, from my experience working with these patients, is you know they just attribute it to hemorrhoids. Basically, it's like, oh, you know, I just ate a bag of you know flaming hot Cheetos, and you know it's bleeding, and you know I haven't pooped in you know a few days, and those are just attributed to that. Um, you know, young and older. And, um, and I'm just like, no, you know, any type of blood, you know, we got to make sure that, you know, we got to make, we got to do our due diligence and follow through, like you said, so you can't over overstate this enough. So I'm really, really glad that you uh, brought that up. So absolutely. And especially now that we're seeing this, this slow rise in incidence in younger people, you know, in the past, we would just say, you know, less likely anything dangerous, anything significant, probably hemorrhoids work on your fiber for several months and let us know. But nowadays, it's really hard for someone uh, to to just attribute the, that rectal bleeding to a simple hemorrhoid. So it yeah. really is important that people, um, you know, get out, talk to your doctors, uh, listen to your bodies um, and and really kind of uh, start that conversation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so, you know, as much as, you know, we love Chadwick Boseman and how much he brought to the world, I would hate to, you know, see other people, you know, not actually talk about this and go to their doctor and, 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 and start that conversation. So, um, Tom, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your expertise. Um, any follow-up, uh, you know, uh, finishing thoughts, um, you know, to give to the audience? Uh, well, you know, I, I, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's, it's always a pleasure. Um, you know, it's always uh, great talking to you, Colin. I'm really excited uh, for what you're doing and, you know, the audience you're trying to reach. Um, I think, uh, as far as any uh, last minute thoughts, really, my my uh, suggestion is uh, just to to emphasize that you know colon cancer is a, a a big problem here in the United States. It's a very common problem, uh, and it's very lethal if if caught late. Yeah. So you know, really start that conversation. Uh, listen to your bodies. If something's not right, if you're having abdominal pain or rectal bleeding. Um, or changes in your bowel habits, 
just and it's not going away after a few weeks, it's really important that you reach out and uh, seek medical attention. So yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, thank you again for those last uh, last thoughts. Um, Guys, you know, again, you know, this is a special episode for Thrive Bites. Um, you know, please, um, as much fun and conversational uh, we tend to get um, in the previous episodes and over time, you know, the information, you know, comes across as, you know, we want you to be well, you know, we want your family to be well, you know, these are tough times, we're in this together. And, uh, but don't, I, I don't want to overstate, um, you know, see your doctor and see your healthcare provider and get checked, you know, health is wealth. And I always emphasize health is priority. So uh, thank you again, guys. This has been another episode of Thrive Bites. If you like this, you know, please subscribe and follow. Um, if you feel like this is um, of importance to someone else, please share this as well. And we will see you on the next episode. Thank you, everyone. Hey guys, that was another episode of Thrive Bites. If you liked that episode, please subscribe and follow for new episodes. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts.